Hello everyone, and welcome to the Future of Cooling podcast. If you're here for the first time, let me introduce myself. I'm your host, Antonella Mazzone, Research Associate at the Future of Cooling program at Oxford Martin School. The Future of Cooling program is advancing research on transitioning technologies and cooling cultures and behaviors that determine energy demand the implications of severe heat for morbidity and the potential to mitigate negative health effects, and mapping the impacts of global cooling production networks, including refrigerant gases. Here with us today, we have Eric Dion Wilson, writer, teacher and poet, pursuing a PhD in environmental humanities. He recently published a must-read book called After Cooling on Freon, Global Warming and the Terrible Costs of Comfort. The book is an acclaimed success with great reviews and a feature in the journal Science. Quoting the article, Wilson weaves together the story of the invention of mechanical cooling and Freon with recollection from a recent road trip with a friend, Sam, whose job is to find, purchase and arrange for the destruction of CFCs. The catch? Almost all the settlers are hostile to climate considerations and the concept of destroying something useful. Sam must win the trust of the sellers without revealing that the ozone-depleting super greenhouse gas chemicals will be eliminated. Eric, this is perhaps one of the most needed books of our times. Can you tell us how this project came about? Absolutely. So um, before I began writing this book, I didn't know anything about air conditioning. I'd grown up in the American South um, in a highly air conditioned environment, loved it. Um, moved to New York City where I used air conditioning extensively. Um, it's funny, I have a lot of people who've read the book um, now who have uh, just assumed that I hate air conditioning uh, and that I um, ha or have never lived in a very hot environment and both are false. Um, and it came about with a relationship with the the um, the sort of main character, if you will, of the book, Sam. Uh, he was a close friend of mine, is a close friend of mine. Um, and I began talking with him about his work because I was curious about it. And um, when he was describing it, um, it sounded so utterly bizarre to me um, and unusual for somebody who considered himself uh, uh, on the left, uh, concerned with environmental issues, also a business person. Um, he was talking to people, as you pointed out, who were quite hostile to um, the idea of global warming um, and working with people on the left. Um, so even more than that, the um, actual work that he was doing with cap and trade, which I'm highly critical of, um, I thought it was interesting that he was talking with people with very different conceptions of the world um, uh, than him. And in the United States, where it's become a kind of truism that we're more polarized politically than ever, here was a story of um, a man who was driving around the United States, destroying this um, global warming gas uh, that nobody thought was still around anymore, and uh, also talking to people across the political divide. So I knew that um, even if it were just a magazine profile, which I thought it was going to be uh, initially, uh, that there was an interesting story there. Um, as I began interviewing Sam, um, it 
occurred to me that I needed to know about the history of air conditioning. Um, little did I know, and maybe if I did, I wouldn't have embarked on this project in the first place, <laughs> that the history of air conditioning is also really a history of industrialization and a history of modernism and the United States of the 20th century. And so um, there is, uh, you know, some use in not not limiting my research at first, um, although it became a gargantuan project and a kind of history, kind of niche history of the United States. Um, and the reason why it's a focus on the United States um, is because um, air conditioning was kind of born and bred in the United States. And for a very, very long time, this is changing now, as you know, but for a very, very long time, the United States was really the prime example of um, comfort cooling. Um, and uh, so much so that, uh, you know, th through parts of the, uh, the 20th century, um, Europe often made fun of the United States for being so air conditioned and for things like um, demanding ice cubes. Um, I remember even in the 90s, I went to, um, I think I went to Paris with my parents and um, my dad was appalled that you couldn't get a glass of ice water in July. Um, he thought it was uncivilized. Um, and it, so, you know, even in, you know, 1998, uh, this was something that I had personal experience with that like, um, you know, in July in Memphis, you wouldn't serve somebody a glass of water without ice. Um, and it seems like a minor um a minor cultural difference, but I think uh, what I tried to do with the book was to try to see um, a real ideological um, schism uh, in that expectation of ice water and that expectation of air conditioning. Um, and I was curious, where did that come from? What are the effects of that? Um, how did it um, support other ideologies? Um, so that's that's kind of a broad overview of how this project came to be. Yeah, thank you. So fascinating, especially to understand like how culture uh, is intertwined with our everyday practices. So, for example, uh, do you have in mind some of the cultural influences that might have shaped our need for cooling and our need for refrigeration? Definitely. Um, one thing that I was really surprised to find in researching this was that um, that the industrialized world, the West hasn't really hungered for the kind of air conditioned environment that we think of today. Um, one of the early story historical narratives of the book is of Dr. John Gorey, uh, a Florida doctor who pretty much invented air conditioning as early as the 1840s. Um, it was clunky. Um, but the, and maybe expensive, he hadn't quite worked out the engineering feat of it, but he did work out the physics of mechanical cooling um, and tried to shop it around to people um, and nobody wanted to invest in it. Um, nobody was really interested in it. Um, they thought it was too strange, um, too complicated and um, culturally bizarre. Um, because a lot of the American South at the time was a kind of um, stiff upper lip attitude to discomfort. Um, the 19th century um, uh, relationship with comfort, um, sorry, with discomfort was was aligned closely with an aristocracy. 
Um, it was kind of character building. And one thing that I learned from some great historians that have written about this is that that started to really change around World War One. that a lot of the horrors of, um, of the war and coming back eroded this sense that discomfort was character building. And there was a real cultural embrace um, of, uh, of comfort. Um, this was aligned with a lot of technologies, a lot of push button technologies, um, and the celebration of the mechanization of things as a kind of sign of progress. Um, so it's not just air conditioning, of course, it's, it's, it's a lot of other things. Um, yeah, so I was surprised to find that, um, that air conditioning aided, um, uh, mass production, um, and really wasn't about comfort until World War II. And after World War II, two things happened that really, um, convinced the American public of the desire for air conditioning. Um, and, uh, those were, uh, the post-war housing boom. Um, so houses and modern architecture, houses began to be made that required air conditioning. Um, now increasingly that's seen as, um, poor design, but, um, things like, uh, larger windows, um, poorly designed insulation, um, low cost building materials. So this is the age in the 19, late forties and fifties of, um, mass produced housing, prefabricated housing. Um, and because they had the technology of air conditioning, they didn't need to design with the, uh, given climate in mind. Um, so this is kind of modernization in a nutshell. Any place could be any other place. And this is something that we experience so commonly today that we often don't think about it. If you go to a Starbucks in Alaska, it's the same as a Starbucks in Phoenix. And that is a really unique experience in human history. Um, it's an experience that's barely a hundred years old. And, um, and to me, that is kind of the apex of modernism. That is modernism, that one place could be everywhere else, that you actually didn't need the unique properties of a given locale. Um, and it's something that is so seductive to us because it aids, um, things like industrialism and aids things like, um, like the flow of capital, um, that it's really hard for us to untangle ourselves from that convenience. Um, uh, the inconvenience of weather, <laughs> inconvenience of climate. Um, so that was the first thing. Um, the, the materials of, uh, uh, and the, the way that housing was being built. Um, and the second thing was, advertising. Um, Madison Avenue had uh, a huge effect on this. Um, this is a, an idea I got from a, a great historian um, named Gail Cooper um, and another one named Andrea Vesentini, um, who have analyzed air conditioning ads from the 40s and 50s. Um, there is a real uh, uncomfortable alliance with the eugenics industry which was something that really su uh, surprised me. Um, the uh, air conditioning ads often aligned air, uh, air conditioning with whiteness um, and with um, certain middle-class professionalism. Um, one of them shows a white businessman sweating at his desk, 
um, not getting his work done and worried that the immigrants are going to take over his job. Um, and then in a next panel, it shows him with in front of an air conditioner, able to efficiently work, no longer afraid that the immigrants are going to um, outpace him. Um, sometimes these ads um, nonsensically also included the suggestion that um, prior civilizations where the immigrants were coming from were lazy because of uh, heat. Um, and so they kind of um, included a nonsensical logic of being both lazy and so productive that they were going to take your job. Um, and so uh, they really preyed on these fears that actually came down to work, work culture. Um, air conditioning um, was still in the 50s, I would argue, not quite an argument for comfort so much as comfort in order to rest so that you can work better the next day. So it was really all still in service to profit. It was all related to work. And this is something that um, that's, that's not pursued as much in the book, but I think is, is a real uh, question for us who are thinking about the future of cooling, which is that um, I think that it's tied up into our assumptions about productivity and work culture. Um, and I'm not sure that we can really address one without addressing the other. Um, and that's a huge, huge uh, Gordian knot of a problem. But I think that it's something that we can see that has sort of always been intertwined with cooling, um, is cooling in order to keep going, cooling in order to keep working, because the civilizational, the cultural alternatives to that were things like the siesta or not working as hard. Um, these are things that, that conserve energy and make sure that you don't overheat. Um, and they're quite effective at um, at uh, mitigating heat deaths, for instance. But they also make it so that you're not um, producing as much or not generating as much money. Um, so I think that um, that's something really important to consider. Very interesting topic. Uh, Eric, you have explained really well the origins of cooling uh, as it tightly linked to modernity and productivity rather than comfort, especially in the early days. Also very interesting, the concept of cooling linked to eugenics and racism. I'd like to ask you a question. As the world is getting hotter and hotter, do you think that we're going in the same direction in the sense of climate racism? Such a good question and such a difficult question um, to answer. Um, I'm not sure. I think that one thing that that is helpful and is crucial. Um, one of the things I tried to do in this book is to to try to look at the the extent to which comfort has been constructed historically. Um, not to say that we don't have our limits or that comfort is all an illusion or something like that. That's not what I mean, but that our, our cultural expectations of comfort are defined by, in part by the industry and the culture in which we live. And we know this because there are different, vastly different cultures that have different expectations for comfort and that influences whether we feel comfortable or not. In a similar way, I feel like the crucial thing is, um, to understand the construction of whiteness um, and um, not to really, it's, it's um, disturbing to me how 
often the um, often whiteness is kind of still talked about in in sort of essentialist terms, even from well-meaning people who are using the language of diversity and inclusion, um, which is often very problematic. Um, that the 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 point is not to inc- include people uh, of as many different races as possible, and just that it's to um, understand how whiteness was constructed in the first place, and to understand that that is that is a social construct that has material effects. Um, I, I still don't think that we are necessarily going in the right direction on that, certainly not in the United States where critical race theory is trying to be banned in certain states here. You cannot even teach that, which is a indication of just how terrifying some people find that. Um, uh, the pushback that I've gotten from random people on social media about the book um, has been really interesting to see. Um, I found that... Uh, during the right after the book came out, my father called me and said, um, I have a friend who watches Fox News who said that your name appeared on Fox News. Um, and I said, are you sure it was me? I, I did not believe him. And I did some sleuthing and found out that I, I was, the book was, sorry, not the book, but a Times piece uh, related to the book about air conditioning. And the the way that air conditioning can um, can go, go hand in hand with systemic racism, um, about which I can say more in a second, but um, was quoted on the Ingram Hour, something I didn't even um, know what that was at the time. But Laura Ingram, a uh, uh, right-wing conservative pundit on Fox News, um, had said my name and quoted this piece. So after that, I got all of these um, DMs and messages on social media from people saying, uh, with expletives, saying I was an an idiot and um, making fun of me for calling air conditioning racist. Um, And uh, of course, I wasn't saying air conditioning is racist. It's a reductive um, term. But um, I mean, something that is ignored in that reduction is um, something that happened that's in the book two summers ago, which I feel like illustrates the way that systemic racism and um, uh, inequality around air conditioning goes hand in hand. Um, So two years ago, uh, there was a a heat wave in New York City, which often doesn't get that hot. It does uh, experience the urban heat island effect um, which can have devastating ex- uh, effects across the city. But it's not a place like Phoenix or Las Vegas or something like that. Um, so it's a problem usually only a few weeks out of the year. Um, so two years ago, um, there was a heat wave. And um, first of all, looking at a map of the city, um, if you look at the city in terms of racial demographics, Um, and in terms of um, uh, income level, and in terms of green space, all those things match up pretty um, neatly. So places that tend to be um, more working class um, and black and brown neighborhoods also tend to be the neighborhoods that have less shade 
and have less access to green space. Um, it's not that difficult to understand why, because the city um, does not put in, does not invest in infrastructure um, that makes these parts of the city prettier because they don't make the city enough money. Um, it also makes the, those parts of this, those neighborhoods of the city hotter. Um, during the heat wave, there had actually a week before there had been a blackout in Manhattan um, that was, uh, to my knowledge, kind of random. It was a it was a faulty technical error, and it, it caused several hours uh, of blackout in Times Square, and the city lost millions of dollars um, in just a few hours because of that. Um, so it was already terrified that this was going to happen again. So a week later, there was a heat wave, and um, the the privatized energy company that has a monopoly over energy called Con Ed, um, they deliberately shut off uh, electricity to um, select neighborhoods in order to, as they put it, preserve the integrity of the system as a whole. The neighborhoods that they chose were almost all neighborhoods that were predominantly black and brown working class neighborhoods. Neighborhoods that I'm very close to, actually. So this was something that did not happen in my neighborhood, but it was something that I was in close proximity to. On days where the heat reached um, 105 degrees. So I feel like that's a perfect example of the way that air conditioning is not even a short, a good short-term solution. You have to have electricity to, um, to use it. And when you are in a city that is often segregated um, by race and class um, because of a legacy of redlining, of denying uh, access to uh, housing to Black families, to Latino families, um, uh, and there's a, a great book of this, a book about this history of this called The Color of Law. Um, that we're still living in the United States through a history of this redlining that happened in the 60s and 70s and 80s and continues to happen. Um, when you get that, it becomes a lot easier um, or rather working class communities of color are often in greater proximity to um, things like heat related vulnerability. Um, and so it's very complex. Um, but that's a way uh, in which systemic racism and um, unequal access to affordable, reliable cooling, whether that's mechanical cooling or passive cooling or what have you, can work hand in hand to exacerbate each other. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Um, everything you said has been also mentioned in one of the papers that I recently read about thermal injustice um, regarding specifically New York and heat waves. And through GIS techniques, they were able to identify uh, the areas of the city that were hit the most. And coincidentally, uh, they are um, also the most vulnerable communities. 
so the economically vulnerable. And so this makes you think how our modern way of working and leaving the city is exacerbating inequalities. So if you think that white colors are comfortable in their offices and they're contributing to uh, dumping heat uh, in the streets where poorer, um, always the less privileged people used to work, um, obviously, you can see the dimension of this inequality um, and is with global warming is definitely going to be much worse. Um, obviously, the, the, um, the poorer neighborhoods that are most affected by heat bubbles, they also have the characteristic of having poor buildings or um, they often uh, amassed and the buildings do not have proper ventilations uh, or green areas, as in the case that uh, the researchers found. I can also think about the loss of culture and coping strategies that uh, characterized uh, cultures, um, ancient populations, for example, like meeting in piazzas or squares or green areas and spending the evening there uh, chatting with their friends. Uh, all of this relationality and sociality um, has gradually been lost with the enclosement of individuals and uh, you also in your book uh, blame uh, air conditioning for, for that cultural change. Can you explain a little bit better what are the other cultural changes related to cooling? Yeah, um, so one thing that... that you know, just to review what you were saying or to emphasize what you were saying is that um, a lot of the strategies for heat mitigation prior to mass air conditioning were very public. Um, things like sleeping uh, in the park. Um, and this is not um, utopian. This happened. Um, this uh, happened in the 1950s in Chicago. Um, it happened in New York City. People who lived close to um, green space or had access to the roof um, would often sleep there um, where it was cooler um, because often buildings that are poorly designed um, in terms of ventilation and heat absorption um, are hottest at night because they absorb all of the heat during the day and then they slowly release it at night. So even after the sun is gone, um, the building can be a lot hotter, actually, than the outside air. Um, so this meant that summer in urban areas, certain urban areas, not all of them, um, in areas like Brownsville and uh, Chicago in the 1950s, became a kind of festival atmosphere. Um, people were outside a lot more because it was hot inside. So it pushed people outside. And there was, as you said, um, a real uh, sociality that was created around this. Kind of a, a, a carnival um, festival atmosphere. Um, so it created a sense of community, I would say. Um, it happened a lot in the South, too, where people would go to their porches, um, which were forward facing and, uh, they got to know each other that way because they were outside because it was too hot inside. Um, and, uh, air conditioning changed a lot of this because it made the, um, mitigation of heat more individual. It was sort of every person for themselves. 
Um, it relied on the technology. You no longer had to share uh, wisdom or ways of um, keeping cool. You could just press the button. That'll do it for you. Certainly a lot more convenient, but a lot of knowledge was lost. Um, and there was this assumption that um, if you were uncomfortable, it was your problem and you had to deal with it. Um, and um, something else that happened was that in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, there was, of course, a major rise in crime um, in cities, in the United States, but also elsewhere, um, uh, in Europe as well. And so um, uh, even if you didn't have air conditioning, the desire or even the, not even the desire, but the um, ability to sleep in uh, a park, say, um, it became not an option. Uh, partially it was it was dangerous, but also um, increased uh, um, uh, criminality of things like sleeping in um, parks. Uh, you know, um, the criminalization of homelessness, the criminalization of vagrancy, um, which is not a new thing, but has had a renewed uh, lease on life really since the 80s. So um, what I'm getting at here really, I think, is that the real dwindling of um, public space, uh, of spaces that people could gather um, where you didn't have to buy anything, um, and especially at night, spaces that were safe. Um, and uh, we see this a lot in an elderly population that doesn't have um, uh, air conditioning, either because they can't afford it or they don't want to pay the bills for it. Um, and uh, the there's a reluctance to go to cooling centers, to public cooling centers, um, because of fear of crime. And sometimes that fear of crime is real. Sometimes it's, um, sometimes it's paranoia. Um, but either way, I feel like we have to pay attention to that, that there, that, um, that part of what is challenging about the future of cooling, if we're going to um, wean ourselves off of the sole reliance on top technology, is that we have to look at things ecologically. We have to understand that part of the problem is also um, how we're looking at the safety of our cities. Um, that we're thinking about safety in terms of um, individual responsibility and not in terms of um, collective responsibility. Um, and I think that that's wrapped up in a lot of this as well, um, is not just a definition of comfort, but also a definition of what we think is a safe city. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Um, I can bring some example on this link between cooling and safety and criminality and is about uh, how people prefer to use air conditioning in their cars even when there is no need for it uh, and instead of, you know, using natural ventilation because of their fear that uh, they might get assaulted. And there are a lot of cases of, you know, young criminals who uh, they are quite armed and they uh, they take advantage of the cars who are going to stop at the traffic light uh, just to assault them. And um, if they see the windows of the car down, they will, of course, uh, have uh, an easier target. So people really don't like having their windows down and they prefer to have air conditioning and this is just one of the many examples of the link between criminality and 
calling. But also I wanted to reflect on what you were saying before that uh, the responsibility of safety is down to the individual instead of the community, instead of the public, uh, instead of being a public responsibility. And I remember one, I recollect one of the passages in your book uh, in which there was an initial denial of the ozone layer depletion. And uh, and when it was evident, Reagan was... Uh, was promoting Rayban, if I if I remember well, um, just as a symbol to say that is now your responsibility to deal with the ozone, you know, depletion. Um, just weigh Raybans and uh, put some sunscreen, and everything will be fine. So again, uh, an environmental issue, a huge environmental issue, is de-responsibilized from the collectivity, and instead is uh, is down to the individual to find solutions for the issue um so what do you think about that yes right. yeah the most absurd moment maybe in in recent environmental history is um right rather than um rather than regulate the companies um that were creating freon cfcs and this was at the height of the Reagan era. So it was a kind of that this incident is sort of the crystallization of what we have come to know as neoliberalization, the hyper individualization of everything. And the, the idea that the individual is responsible for their own well-being. Um, and this is a kind of ultimate expression of freedom. You're free to do whatever you want, but you're also free to starve and um burn alive um <laughs> and um and so during the reagan years uh the uh they really refused to um to act on um on pushing for regulation um to phase out cfcs and there was a ridiculous suggestion it didn't actually become policy but there was a suggestion that um if people just bought sunscreen and um, sunglasses and then wore hats, then um, and they weren't out in the sun too often, then it wouldn't be a problem. Um, and of course, that's not true because um, it was a gross misunderstanding of the problem because um, not only is that um, obviously absurd, but um, increased ozone uh, can make entire ecosystems um, and food chains collapse. Um, so, you know, not even thinking about what happens to our skin, um, we, it would basically kill most plant life. So, um, I would say that's a problem. Um, and, <laughs> um, yeah, this, this hyper individualization, um, uh, during the, the ozone crisis, um, became increasingly, uh, it exposed the ways that we are not equipped, um, to think about, uh, addressing environmental crisis. Um, I say we, I, I mean, really the Western world, but especially I think the United States in the Reagan years and in Britain in the Thatcher years, you know, this idea, there is no alternative, um, you know, to capitalism, every person um, is responsible for their own well-being and their own success. Um, this myth that somebody's success does not depend on a grand network of people that actually help them to get out there. Um, this is basic ecosystems thinking. Um, uh, and it also showed the limits of, um, you know, consumer activism. 
um, which don't really do much if the company is still allowed to produce the harmful effect. Yeah, I seem to recollect that uh, just about the responsibility that you were talking about. There is a company that you mentioned in your book that was not taking responsibility for the damages that they were doing, especially in the manufacturing of CFC. Uh, do you remember which one by chance? This is something recently um, there. I was I am from Memphis. My parents still live there and I was going home uh, for the holidays to visit my parents and they live in a suburb, east suburb of Memphis. And uh, before I went, I I was found this map of Superfund sites in the United States. So sites that where there's major uh, federal investment to clean up environmental uh spills and i saw that there was a super fun site like half a mile from my parents house and i thought what is that and i looked at it and it's a carrier plant carrier air conditioning plant and i found out that they had um asked the county health board whether they could dump some of the chemical runoff um into the the groundwater um Uh, dump might be a slight mischaracterization, but store it someplace where it would leak into the groundwater. Um, something about Memphis is that they have pristine drinking water um, due to the aquifers that the city sits above. So um, as polarized as the city gets, the only thing that everyone can agree on is that everybody loves the drinking water. Um, it's some of the best drinking water in the country. It's totally clean. It takes very minimal treatment. Um, and it's a, a kind of um, gem of the city. Um, and there were all these studies that said that this was going to leak into and taint the drinking water. And so luckily the, the um, health board said, absolutely, no, you cannot do this. Um, and that's, that's, total madness. <laughs> Why would you do that? Um, and this, you know, um, thinking that uh, a, a real inability to understand the interdependence of, of all things. Um, you know, I think a great example of the, the focus on the consumer is, um, is single-use plastic and recycling. You know, this idea of recycling as, as somebody's responsibility Um, to recycle things. And if you don't recycle, you're a monster. Yeah. It's such a scam. Um, you know, it's not, I'm not against recycling, but it's not my responsibility and it's not your responsibility. That is corporate infrastructure that the corporation has chosen not to deal with and to punt the responsibility to the consumer. Yeah. And that is a corporate responsibility that is shirked. And we see that all the time. And I think that single use plastic is actually, um, And of course, plastic is oil. So it's mm -hmm. it's oil that the corporation has um, has shrugged off responsibility for and just kicked it to a person who um, uh, kicks the cost to the consumer. Yeah, we seem to be living a period where the responsibility is always down to the individual, as we were mentioning before. Um, although not all the informations are in our hands. So, for example, 
um, we're often blamed for, I don't know, traveling too much or, uh, I don't know, using a lot of like uh, fast fashion, for example. But not all the information is in, in people's hands. So I can think of, for the case of air conditioners, uh, most people don't know that the refrigerant gases, especially of the older generations, were harmful to the environment. Um, if people knew, perhaps they would have made another choice. Uh, I'm thinking about that people are mostly aware of, for example, energy efficiency, but not about the greenhouse uh, warming potential of some of these refrigerants. So, again, it's, it's down to corporate responsibility, as you were saying before, and also environmental and governmental regulations, uh, because people do not have a PhD in chemistry and they don't know, um, not everybody knows the effects of the products or the services that we are consuming. So really, it's down to the government and corporations to do something. I think that they hold most of the responsibility, although they're trying to blame single individuals for environmental issues. Definitely. Yeah, and I think this brings up a tension that I think about all the time. And it's a question um, I get all the time, which is this tension between individual versus uh structural, you know, and I do think that, you know, more than um, consumer activism or, you know, what to buy, or what not to buy or what to do or what not to do, that there is an individual responsibility, but it's to join a collective or join a, a, a sort of um, organization to push the government to push these corporations to act. I feel like that is, of course, it's not an individual responsibility. That's actually a collective responsibility. But it's that, um, you know, like you said, we, we can't be um, expected to be experts in these things that are completely complicated. Um, uh, we can't be expected to know that. And we also shouldn't feel guilt for not knowing that. Um, but one thing that you can do is to kind of tap into um a wider community that does have those resources that's working to push the government um or uh, you know a corporation or something like that to change because those um well organized uh movements like that um can have very dramatic effects um i mean something very different but i think very much related that we're seeing right now is the farmers revolt in india you know you have um uh, a well-organized working class uh um uh collective that's pushing a pretty violent government um to change um and we've seen a lot of that organizing during the reagan years not necessarily around environment but around a lot of other things um, that had uh, a really um, fantastic effect um, on the government. And even the, the, the sort of Ray-Ban plan, the, the sunscreen and, and Ray-Ban, um, was ridiculed so hard by the media and by um, environmental activists, um, parodied so hard that it had the opposite effect of what the administration had hoped, which was that it actually moved them to, um, because they were so embarrassed by this, uh, it was such a scandal that it moved them to actually um, uh, accept more stringent um, 
and robust regulations. So um, maybe I'm naive in saying this, but I do think that there's worth in um, uh, public humiliation, <laughs> in public um, holding people accountable um, publicly um, uh, when it's deserved from people who are in power, um, not from people, um, consumers, uh, you know, citizens. Uh, and um, even though um, it's becoming increasingly concerning whether people in power really care about their public image, um, which is certainly a question, um, but uh, I still think that that does have um, an effect. This kind of sort of public um, uh, public shaming of figures who should be using their responsibility, or sorry, using their power for responsible ends. Yeah, I agree uh, absolutely with this technique of uh, public shaming, especially of the public figures. Uh, although I'm a little bit disenchanted recently because we've seen uh, important public figures uh, being sexist and misogynist, uh, being uh, transphobe. So uh, nothing surprises us anymore because we have the ability to forget too soon, I think, especially in recent times. Uh, so, yeah... Ultimately, I think that is down to corporate responsibility and uh, governmental actions to really take responsibility for all the environmental pollution and all the environmental damages that corporations actually do. I just wanted to go back to the issue of Freon. Although it has been banned from commercial uses a long time ago, uh, in your book we we find evidence that it's still traded and is still available in the black market. Do we have a sense of how much Freon is still out there and how difficult it is to phase out? This is one of the strangest things about Sam's story. I want to be clear that you know CFCs are not one of the major global warming gases, but at the, the um, I mean, compared to methane and carbon dioxide um, and nitrogen oxides. Um, but uh, given that we have overspent our carbon budget, if you want to put it in those terms, um, every little bit counts and molecule for molecule CFCs and HFCs um, are highly potent greenhouse gases. Um, so we can't really afford anything at this point. And um, what is super strange is that for a chemical that has uh, not been manufactured in the United States since 1997, um, there, Sam, in his time, several years at this green uh, energy startup, never really saw the end of, of uh the Freon supply. Um, so uh, I think a lot of air smuggling, uh, smuggling operations in uh, the 1990s and early 2000s uh, for Freon. Um, in fact, I was just watching The Sopranos um, and uh, the TV show, and there's a brief mention of a Freon smuggling ring. Um, and uh, this is maybe 2001. So um, for the writers of that show, it was still present um, in New Jersey mafia uh, 
organization uh, to to make mention uh, in in an episode of The Sopranos. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I think that one of the things that that makes that what you just said makes me think of is that uh, the United States was um, with the Montreal Protocol and the federal regulation that uh, in the United States that followed that wildly successful international agreement. Um, they were pretty good about shutting down um, uh, production of CICs, despite the corporate resistance. Um, it was highly successful. Um, one of the few sort of like environmental success stories in terms of shutting down a chemical. Um, what they were not successful about was considering the cleanup of that. Um, to my knowledge, there's no, um, they made it illegal to just throw Freon away. But in terms of going around like Sam and actually destroying the chemical e ecologically responsibly, there's no program for that. And so I think what that points to is, um, is a warning story about um, what to do with chemicals and fossil fuels that have already been dredged and that exist there, but that we can't afford to burn or emit. Um, it's very difficult because how do you find this stuff? How do you regulate it? Um, but I think that somebody, that, that we need to think about that, that think about how to actually destroy the stuff and make sure that it's not just freely used. It's quite remarkable there is still a market for Freon, although it's, uh, it's been phased out. Um, did Sam eventually tell you who are the main buyers of Freon? A lot of small individual people. So um, like uh, car mechanics, um, uh, people who retrofit cars, um, uh, things like that. Um, and sometimes um, hoarding quite a, quite a bit of it. Um, it's still a little bit of a mystery to me. There's also this assumption, which I think is maybe true, which is that um, CFCs are a bit more efficient at cooling. Um, given their uh, hailing as a, being hailed as a scientific miracle for so many years, um, that's probably true in terms of like energy efficiency and ability to cool and sort of chemical properties. Um, CFCs is, is remarkably efficient at cooling. Um, so a lot of people who, a lot of like HVAC technicians and things like that just kind of held on to it, um, partly out of nostalgia, but partly out of this desire not to change over. Um, so, um, but it's still curious because there's not really a market in that way for um, Freon, except now, of course, there is a market to destroy it um, for carbon credits. Uh, for California's cap and trade system. Um, and, uh, you know, cap and trade has been uh, criticized on the left, rightly so, for um, an inefficient system that doesn't actually ratchet down emissions. One thing that, and I totally agree with that, one thing that I thought was, um, is interesting though, is that for a material that's no longer produced, that's very finite, and it is very specific, in this case, uh, CFC 12, um, that uh, the California cap and trade system has actually um, worked to destroy the material um, ecologically. For uh, carbon dioxide and methane and things like that, no. Um, but 
Um, but probably the California cap and trade system has had um, uh, a positive effect on, on destroying this chemical. Fascinating to learn about this. So what are the next lessons for the future of cooling? Um, I mean, the, I hope this doesn't sound like too rosy, um, or too, too cheesy, but I mean, the, the lesson that always comes up for me is interconnectivity. Um, and this goes back to what we're talking about with corporations too, is that I actually think that the corporations, uh, acknowledge this in a way they need the people from below. Um, they just also need that hierarchy. They need to hold on to the power um, and also try to control um, uh, the citizens who are who are purchasing their products. Um, I think that global leaders also know that um, everyone is connected because global leader does not have power without controlling people below. Global leaders need people. That is how they are granted power. Otherwise, they would just go to an island by themselves and live. You know, they wouldn't want people. Uh, the problem there is the hierarchy of power, right? And so I think that's something that is important for um, those who are not global leaders, not CEOs of corporations, um, to keep in mind is that we are all interconnected and it is also so important for us to... Um, to remember that, to break out of this um, ideological and cultural landscape of the individual. Um, and also, you know, thinking about coming from COP, uh, COP was a, um, a surreal place because in so many, um, in so many areas of the conference, it was as if history did not exist. The focus was on now um and the future and yeah it's really important that we act now obviously i agree with that but it was as if history were banished there was no there were there were maybe kind of um lip service uh references to colonialism and things like that but a lot of the industrialized world was not interested in um a deep analysis of the history of colonialism, because to do that is to also assign responsibility. And um, I think one of that's one of the things that um, I was hoping to do with this book is to really just try to look at the historical unfolding of this and to try to reinsert the historical um, narrative into air conditioning, that it's not something that we've always wanted in the same way, um, but is actually something that was very painstakingly constructed over time. And um, I think that, that that's the kind of um, um, lesson that, that I would like people to take from, you know, this book is that um, is the, is the importance of history because it shows us that things weren't always this way. And so they don't have to continue being this way in the future. They can actually change. Thanks a lot, Eric, for being with us. It's been a pleasure. And thank you so much for so 
so many lessons that we learned today about Freon, about this journey, the history of AC, about the cultural construction of AC, about how it changed the way that we behave and the way that we deal with comfort and we can cope with heat, and also about future lessons for future leaders. Thank you so much, and I see you next time. Thank you so much.